The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. Well, to begin with today, I want to give you a little bit of a, um, you might say, behind-the-scenes look at how I choose what to talk about each week during these sermons. It's a very exciting thing. I'm sure you stay up at night wondering this uh, all the time, so I figure I will I'll once and for all settle it for you. You won't have to think about it anymore. <laughs> um, no, actually, it's, I'm sure you don't think about it ever, uh, which is, that's why I want to tell you about it. Um, There's basically two ways to go about this if you are a pastor who has to give a sermon once a week or so. And um, you can either start with a topic or you can start with a biblical text, right? And generally, people do one or the other and they feel fairly passionately that the way they do it is the right way, which is not unusual. We always think that the way we do anything is the right way. Uh, But those who start with a topic say, if you're going to be a pastor, you need to speak to your community about things that matter to them. You have to be topical and relevant. Um, And those who start with a text say, you need to start with the Bible because it is the authority and you have to allow the Holy Spirit to speak into the lives of your community through the text. And uh, if you know me well, you probably won't be surprised to hear that I think both of those things are true and um, they're both right. Uh, And so at Artisan, we do kind of a mix of those things. Um, we've done it both ways. Recently, we've done some topical series. You know, the, we did a marriage series. Um, we did a series on what is the church. Uh, we just finished one called The Means of Grace. These were all topics that they were the starting point, the idea. And then we, of course, used the scriptures to support the idea. Uh, but we started with the idea itself. Um, but we also very often start with the, with the text. Uh, so, for example, as we get ready for Christmas and Easter and other holy days in the year, we usually start with Bible texts, and we allow those to dictate what we're going to talk about. So Christmas and Easter. Other times we have done studies of an entire book of the Bible. We've looked at Jeremiah or Philippians and that kind of thing. So the reason I say all that is, one, so you can kind of uh, look behind the curtain a little bit. Um, And the other reason is that this series, Jesus on Community, is kind of a hybrid of those two ideas. What happened was... Uh, we'd done a lot of topical stuff, and I thought, we need to get back to this text-driven thing. And so I looked at the Revised Common Lectionary. And if you don't know what the lectionary is, it's just a collection of Scripture readings for each week. And uh, what I found was that the Gospel reading assigned for each of the next four weeks was Jesus teaching on something. And it seemed that the common thread with all the things he was talking about was community. And so we have a, a topical concept that is, what does it mean to live in community with each other? But it's actually driven by the readings from the, the Revised Common Lectionary, which is sort of, that's like, a, that's like an assignment. So you don't get to pick that. It just so happens that it worked out that way. And uh, so during this series especially, but really at any time, if you're a kind of person who wants to look at the Bible and read the Bible, but you don't know where to start, uh, I would highly recommend going to the lectionary. You can just do a Google search for lectionary. Um, it probably works on Bing, too, but 
I've never gone to Bing, so I don't know. Um, but if you do a search for lectionary, you'll find it, and it'll show you the assigned readings for each week. And it would be a great way to prepare for the upcoming week's sermon and uh, other things that go on during the service if you read those passages as part of your personal devotional time. So um, you might consider looking at the, at the lectionary. With all that said, I'd love to get started today with uh, the topic of the week, which is surrender, Jesus' teachings on surrender. We just sang that lovely old uh, hymn, I Surrender All, and I think that prepared our hearts for what we're about to hear. Um, I'd also like to uh, begin this sermon and the series as a whole with a word of prayer. So would you join me in praying this morning? God, as we seek to live out your calling on our lives, especially as those of us who are part of Artisan Church seek to live out the value that you've placed on our hearts, that value of community, we pray that these words uh, and teachings of your son Jesus would take root in our hearts, would be uh, watered by the influence of the Holy Spirit, and that would produce the fruit of surrender, of unity, of forgiveness, and of welcome. And that we would live in better community with each other, and as a consequence, in better community with you as a result. Amen. So today's gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 26. And uh, I always encourage you to bring your own Bibles. If you own one, it's good to have your own thing that you can latch on to. If you didn't bring one with you or if you don't have one, you can use one of the red ones under the chairs. It looks just like this one. And uh, incidentally, if you don't own a Bible, you can take one of these home with you. We buy them every once in a while and put them under the chairs and people take them. And, and that's all part of the plan. So that's okay. Um, so let's start with uh, the lectionary's assigned reading, which is um, Matthew 16, starting with verse 21. It says, from that time on, and uh, we're only four words in and we have a problem. <laughs> from that time on, this is one of those uh, expressions, one of those phrases that should make us think, what did we just miss, right? Do you know how I always say, what is the therefore, therefore? It's not, it's against the rules to read the Bible, see a, a passage or a verse that starts with therefore, and not go back and see what it's saying. Because what the word therefore means is, because of everything I've just said, here's the application or whatever. Um, so you can't start with therefore. I don't think we can start either with from that time on, because that sounds pretty interesting. It sounds like something important just happened. And so what I'd like to do is go back a few verses, actually start with verse 13, which is outside what the lectionary assigns, but that's okay. We, uh, as long as you don't tell them, I won't tell them either. So verse 13 starts, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So that's what we've, that's the, that's the background. And then Matthew's going to go on and say from that time on, and then that will be the passage that's assigned for today. But there's a question in that background that really stands out to me, and I think it's a question that Jesus asked of his disciples then, and I think he asks it of every one of us as well. And the question is, who do you say that I am? So he starts out, it's sort of an icebreaker. So, hey, what do people, who do people say that I am anyway? What are they, what's the scuttlebutt? What's the word on the street about Jesus? And they tell him. Their defenses are down a little bit. They're saying, yeah, they, they call you all these all kinds of different things. Some people say this, some people say that. And they're really into the discussion. Then he says, wait a second, but who do you say that I am? And I think that's a question that each of you needs to imagine Jesus is asking you. Because as we know, our friends and neighbors and, and uh, everybody in the world has some opinion about who Jesus is and was. But it doesn't quite matter to Jesus what your friends think he is. It matters who you say that he is. And so he, he asked that question and Guess who answers? Who answers him? <laughs> Peter. Right, so if you ever get a trivia question, who answered the question such and such when Jesus asked it? And you have no idea. You could probably say Peter and be correct most of the time. Peter's one of those guys who always answers the question regardless of whether he has the first tiniest little clue what he's talking about or not. Um, and we all have friends like that, don't we? If you don't have a friend like that, you are the friend like that. Probably. <laughs> So Peter answers and he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And, um, okay, Peter is sometimes clueless, but he gets it right this time. And um, especially for us, looking back on this 2,000 years later, given all the Christology, all the theology about Jesus Christ that we have absorbed in our lives, it's easy for us to say, wow, he nailed that. A plus, Peter. And it would seem that Jesus' response to him would support that idea as well. He likes his answer so much that he gives him a new name, uh, and he calls him Peter, uh, Petros. And on this rock, Petra, these are the Greek words, I will build my church. So it's kind of like calling him Rocky. Um, it's, a, it's a little play on words, and he gives him a new name. The answer is so satisfying and so correct that Jesus gives him a new name. Um, But one of the things that we can miss here, especially since we do have all this theology in our heads, is that I think Peter's answers were not entirely spiritual. I think the way he answered that question was not, was not he, he got it right in spite of himself, you might say. And Jesus, Jesus affirms that, just like he does for all the rest of us idiots. Um, but if you look at the way those terms were used, the term Messiah, yes, had a very important Jewish meaning, but it literally just means anointed king, the anointed one. So it means, you, means he's a king. And to call a ruler the son of God, or in the Roman era might have been said the son of the gods, that was a title that was usually ascribed to the Roman emperor. And so you see a hint in Peter's response, theologically correct as it may ultimately have been, of his 
actual desires for the type of ruler, the type of Messiah, the type of king that he wanted Jesus to be, which was one who would overthrow the oppressive Roman rulers and restore the Jewish state to its proper glory. So he's saying the right things about Jesus, but he's, he's kind of giving, he kind of has these wrong reasons, I think, uh, for why he says them. And of course, we know that that's not the type of king that Jesus ended up being. And um, so this, this story proceeds in spite of Peter's being both right and wrong at the same time. Okay, so that's the background. We've done the, from that point on, um, research. So let's, let's read the passage for today, 21 through 26. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests, chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. <clears throat> and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Rebuke him, by the way, is a word that's almost only used in the New Testament about evil spirits. And Peter's rebuking Jesus, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What I find most interesting in this passage is Jesus' response to Peter. Peter, who has rebuked him. It's a striking condemnation. He doesn't just say, Peter, take it easy. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Could you imagine being one of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples? In fact, the one that's so important that Jesus has just given you a new name and said that he's going to build his entire church on you. And then, not sure quite how long later, but not long after that, he, Jesus, is telling you, you are a stumbling block to me. You're getting in the way of what I'm trying to do. And why does Jesus say Peter is being a stumbling block? He says, you are setting your mind on div- not on divine You are not setting your mind on divine things, that is, godly things, but on human things. See, Peter had just tried to shut Jesus up about all this great suffering and hand it over to be killed business. He had said, God forbid it. This must never happen. And now you begin to see Peter's motives turning the wheel just a little bit again, probably. If Jesus is going to be handed over and, and killed, that's going to... That's going to squash the plan, at least as Peter understands it and hopes for it. He expected Jesus to be a king, but on his terms, on Peter's terms, not on Jesus' own terms. And I think it would be um, probably unwise for us to sit up on our spiritual high horses and look at what Peter said and his expectations of of Jesus' kingdom and say, man, he got it so wrong, because I think we do the same thing ourselves um, almost constantly, actually. We try to shape Jesus and his kingdom into our own expectations of what it might be. 
And by the way, we are just as likely to use the very specific means that Peter was hoping for when we do this. That would be a political means. Jesus wanted, or Peter wanted Jesus to become a conquering king who would overthrow the evil, corrupt government of his day. And we want to turn Jesus into a, a politician a lot of times as well. Now, this is on both sides of the political spectrum. Whether we're liberals and we want to sh- try and shape Jesus' kingdom into our own vision for social action, or we're conservatives and we want to try and shape Jesus' kingdom into our own vision for family values, or anything in between, we, we kind of want to like put Jesus on a little button and stick him on our chest and force him into this political um, rulership. And Jesus rejected being a political king already once, and yet we still try to force him into that mold. He said, uh, Jesus said in John 18, my kingdom is not from this world. Yes, I'm a king, but not the kind you want. He refused to be a political puppet then, and I think that he would like to refuse now. And I think when we do that, whether it's political or otherwise, when we try to shape Jesus' kingdom into our own vision for what it ought to be, we are doing just what Peter did, which is setting our minds not on divine things, but on human things. It's, it's no use having a king if you want always to have your own way. It's, it's not a democracy. It's a, it's a monarchy. <laughs> so in the next couple of verses, Jesus lays out a cure for this disease. And um, so, so that's good news. Really um, simple way to avoid being a stumbling block to Jesus. And here's what he says. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves... And take up their cross and follow me. Um, this translation, like the one that we use almost all the time, is the New Revised Standard Version. And uh, it does something which I'm committed to supporting, which is to use non-exclusive language when it comes to gender. And so it pluralizes what happens here. But I think it, as a result, it sort of takes the teeth out of what Jesus is actually saying. And you, if you have an NIV or another, another translation, you may have... Um, hymns and himself in there. But let me just say it this way. What, what Jesus is saying is, it, it is to all of us, but he's saying it very pointedly to, to you as an individual and to me as an individual. If you want to become my follower, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's a little, little bit uh, less gentle, isn't it? You say it like that. See, following Jesus, walking in his way, ultimately leads to one thing. And that is complete and utter surrender to the will of God. Even to the point of death. And that's not easy, <laughs> is it? Obviously. It's, it's so difficult that Jesus himself struggled with it. Jesus, on the night that he was... Uh, arrested, was in the Garden of Gethsemane and praying. And he said in his prayer, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. It wasn't easy for Jesus. It's it's not going to be easy for you or for me. But the good news is it's not like anybody is expecting you to find it easy. 
this concept of uh, taking up your cross. And it does come with a promise. It's a little bit of a counterintuitive promise, but it's a promise nonetheless. Jesus goes on to say this. He says, for those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. And that's a, that's a classic Jesus-style statement, isn't it? It's a, it sounds both wonderful and awful all at the same time. And um, it's, a, it's a verse that, having grown up in the church, I've heard I don't know how many hundred times. But I have to be honest with you and tell you that um, I'm not quite sure I fully get it. I don't know that I grasp exactly what Jesus is meaning here. Those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will find it. It's one of those verses you could spend your whole life trying to figure out and apply and, and never quite get it under your thumb. And I, I feel like it's very much not under my thumb. So what I'm going to tell you is what I think it means. And, and um, maybe if you disagree, you can tell me <laughs> what you think it means. But um, I'm pretty sure that for most of us, it doesn't actually mean that we're going to have to die for our faith. Um, certainly, there have been Christians killed for their faith throughout the church's history. It's still happening in parts of the world today. Um, and for uh, if church tradition is to be believed, all the apostles but one were martyred for their faith. John got to live and become old and, and a little bit weird. Um, having visions on islands, but the rest of them all were brutally killed for their faith. So there's, it's not as though there's no precedent for that, but I don't think that for us it's likely that that's going to be what's asked of us, um, which is, you know, encouraging. <laughs> um, although in some ways that would be clearer and simpler than what the passage probably actually does mean for us, which is that I think Jesus wants your life, not your death. I think what Jesus wants from you is your life, not your death. All of your life, every day, month after month, year after year, until you die of whatever natural cause hopefully takes you from this mortal coil. He wants your life and every little bit of it more than your death. And the flip side of that is when he says those who want to save their life will lose it. I don't think that he's simply talking about survival. Uh, you know, you could imagine the early Christians under the persecution of Rome fleeing, trying to save their lives. And you might think, well, that's what Jesus, Jesus is, is being prescient here. He's saying that is what, you know, those who try to save their life will lose it. But again, I don't think that's going to happen to us. I just I think it's very unlikely that, it, statistically anyway, that anyone in this room is going to be asked to give his or her life for, for faith in Christ. But I think what he's talking about for us is selfishness. When he says, if you're trying to save your life, you're going to, to lose it, I think what he's trying to talk about for us is the if, if you want to hoard everything in your life, if you want to guard it and protect it and... Um, Keep everything for yourself. 
you're going to lose it. And that's, that's our natural inclination. Um, we want to keep everything to ourselves. We want to keep our job. Some of us anyway. Some of us don't like our job, but we want to keep, we want to keep a job at least. We want to keep our money. We want to keep our house. We want to keep our families. We want to keep our best laid plans intact. We want to be good Americans, which means being strongly individualistic, maintaining complete control over everything that happens to us. You know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? That's the American way. It's from um, which chapter in here? Talks about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Declaration of Independence 7 4. It's not what Jesus promises, it's not what he tells you to expect. Though the Declaration of Independence may have that little endowed by our Creator stamp on it, that doesn't mean that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is actually what you get if you want to follow Jesus. Those who want to save their life will lose it. At this point, if you're the type of person who pays attention to the big picture, um, and I hope that some of you are, which is why I introduced this sermon the way I did, you're probably asking yourself, is is he ever going to talk about community? (laughs) After all, this series is about community. Sometimes I have this, like, this Jim Gaffigan voice in my head. <laughs> he didn't talk about community until 40 minutes in. <laughs> Their coffee was bad. <laughs> mm. Well, I think that this particular teaching of Jesus, some people have never heard Jim Gaffigan. They're going, what is he talking about? I don't know. <laughs> How long is he going to do this? Uh, This particular teaching of Jesus, this one about surrender of your life, is the foundation for all the things we're going to talk about in the coming weeks. This teaching about surrender is the first thing that we need to commit ourselves to if we want to live out our community value. Artisan has five biblical values, and one of them is community. We want to live that out. I think it starts with surrender. Surrender our lives to Christ. That's, of course, the most important thing. That's the top level concern. But we also need to surrender our lives to who else? To each other, don't we? And to those who might come into our sphere of influence in this building or outside of this building. If we're going to live out that value of community, it starts with surrender. Surrender, even though it doesn't always use this word, the concept is throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, especially the teachings of Jesus and the actions and teachings of the early church, all about surrender. Bear one another's burdens and do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And, um, you know, the early church was so radical as to say that they had everything in common. They pooled their possessions, which sounds vaguely un-American to me, but that's what they did. Suffice it to say, all of the topics that we'll talk about during this Jesus on Community series 
require this type of surrender. So next week, we're going to talk about unity and uh, being of one accord. And how on earth could we do that? How could we ever be united if we are unwilling to let go of the constant desire to have our own way in everything? If you can't surrender your desire to have your own way, you are never going to be unified with, with much of anyone. And then the third week of this year is we're going to talk about forgiveness, which is a, I mean, we, we could talk about forgiveness every Sunday for the next year, and still probably we wouldn't quite get it. <laughs> but I do know one thing about forgiveness, and that's that you have to, you have, to have some level of surrender if you're going to get there. Perhaps you have to surrender the grudge that you're holding. Perhaps you have to surrender um, some anger. And uh, since forgiveness is a two-way street, perhaps the person that you are trying to forgive but can't needs to surrender something as well. And so it just it's all wrapped up. And then the last week, we're going to talk about welcome. Uh, and that's, that, that sermon will come from a fascinating parable that Jesus tells. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. And um, I'm not even going to tell you what it's about. You're just going to have to come back and hear it because I think it's really an interesting one. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that one. So I'm not going to tell you about it yet. Mark it on your calendar. I think that's September 18th. Um, and now, now I really have to give a good sermon that day. But, um, you know, I, welcome is just kind of one part of the idea. Now, those of you who are smart are going, I'm going to go to the lectionary and find that passage, and then I'm going to know. And sure you are. Good for you. (laughs) Surrender is the foundation for unity and forgiveness and for welcome and for all the components and facets of this beautiful community work that God has called us to. And so it begins with surrender. Um. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we sung earlier, we surrender all to you. But we know, Lord, and certainly you know, that this act of surrender is one that needs to be revisited and reestablished every day, maybe every minute, because our hearts are prone to wander. And our selfishness is a weed that we can't seem to kill. So we pray as we continue in this worship today and as we continue to look at your words on what it means to be in community with each other, that we would be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We'd be given the courage and the facilities to surrender. What, what you're calling us to let go of. That we would stop trying to save and hoard our lives and control everything. That we would give over to you all that we have. And that we would trust you with that. And we pray that you would give us the abundant life that you promise as a result. We pray these things in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, 
I'd like to ask you to take just a couple of minutes of silence and meditate for a minute, ponder for a minute on what type of surrender Jesus might be asking of you. I can't tell you what it is. I can barely figure it out in my own life. Um, But I want you to take a few minutes, maybe look back at the words of that passage if it would be helpful, um, in silence and and maybe write something down. Ponder in your heart what it means to surrender, what it means for you. And then um, in a minute or two, the band will come back in. We're going to continue to sing and worship God in that way. And you can go and get your children. And uh, as that's happening, our communion table will be open uh, for the rest of our service together uh, as a place where you can go to indicate your surrender to Jesus and to his sacrifice and his grace. Um, Tear off a piece of the bread. You can dip it in the wine or the juice, whatever's more appropriate for you and your family. Receive that uh, as food for your souls, as an act of remembrance and as, as an act of unity with each other. So respond as God would lead you. Take a minute of silence, um, and then we'll continue to worship him in song and at his table.